Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Good morning. How are you guys? Good, good. Yeah, happy uh, last uh, Sunday in July. Unfortunately, thanks, Howard. You had me. I thought I thought like somebody died, and then I'm like, oh, it's August. It's almost worse. <sighs> Bad joke. Bad joke. All right. Hey, let's start over. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Rosewood Church. Uh, my name's Austin Vondercheck. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood, and uh, we are continuing in our series called Cautionary Tales. And in this series, we are looking at uh, we're looking at good lessons that come out of uh, bad people, not so good people. And today, we are focusing in on King David. Uh, King David is, is an interesting one for this list. In fact, depending on what you know about his, his story or, or, uh, or, or which, which parts are kind of highlighted in your mind, he might seem like a perfect fit. He might also seem like the worst person that, that we could put uh, on this list. So let me first tell you why uh, he doesn't belong on this list. For one, he's remembered as one of the greatest kings of Israel. Uh, thanks to David and his leadership, he helped to save Israel and protect them from invasion and, and, and destruction. Uh, he's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, which is a big deal. And, and it, here's another thing. When, when David came up short, and he did a number of times, when he came up short, he always eventually came to a place of repentance and, and asking God for forgiveness. Granted, it usually took someone else like prompting him or him thinking that he got away with something and, then, uh, that, that, and that's how it came about, but still you got to at least give him, give him a little bit of credit. And, and at the end of the day, the way that David was remembered according to future uh, scripture writers is that David was a man after God's own heart. So does a man after God's own heart really deserve to be on a list of cautionary tales? Well, you'd be the judge, I guess. David's life started in a, a very humble, humble way. Uh, when he was a young man, the king of Israel was King Saul. Now, you usually became king because you were uh, uh, in the line of the current king. Well, David, of course, eventually becomes king, but he is not in the line uh, with, with Saul. But while David is still a young man, King Saul begins to, to rebel against God, and, and he becomes, becomes demented in his mind, and, and, and God lifts the anointing off of Saul. And, and Saul, in the eyes of God, is no longer the king. And so God goes to a prophet named Samuel. And he says to Samuel, this is what's happened. And I am charging you with the responsibility to find the new king. Now, I already know who it's going to be, but I need you to find him. And he says, I want you to go to this little backwater town called Bethlehem. And while you're there, I want you to find a man named Jesse. Jesse has a whole bunch of sons. Find Jesse, one of his sons, is to be the next king of Israel. 
So he goes, he finds Jesse, and Jesse brings out all of his, all of his sons, and they're all they're good-looking, they're strong, they're, they're kingly material. And Samuel cross-examines all of them and discovers God, I mean, again, they're good material, but God says, no, 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 this, this isn't it. Uh, the, the king isn't here. And so Samuel says, I mean, you got another one in the back room? Like, is there another, another son that potentially, and he's like, yeah, actually, I've got a, my, my real young son, his, his name is David, he's He's out in the field. He's a shepherd. And so Samuel goes to, to David, and as soon as he meets him, God says, no, this is my man. David will be the next king of Israel. And so, so uh, Samuel takes out his, his, all, his, his oil. He anoints David on the moment. And, and, and normally this anointing ceremony would be, uh, would be overstated. But in this case, it's not. It's, it's a, a very humble, but it is significant. Because from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord was upon David in power. However, apparently no one told Saul that. Because Saul continues to operate as king. Which is, you find yourself, if you're reading this story and you're unfamiliar with it, it it comes across as a very strange thing. Because God has lifted his anointing from Saul, David has been anointed king, and then like nothing changes. Saul continues to lead Israel, even though David is God's king, Saul is still the people's king. So while Saul continues to reign, David begins to, in his own humble way, start to kind of become a little more popular and a little more well-known. He begins to develop, to develop into the man that God needs him to be, to be king. And, and we, we come to a, a real turning point when, uh, when eventually we get to the story of David and Goliath. And you probably know the story, but you know, David defeats Goliath. It was a responsibility that Saul should have done himself, but David steps in because no one else will, and David kills the overpowered Goliath. Uh, and, and as a result, it becomes a turning point where people start to look at David as, as more than just this shepherd boy, this harp player. Uh, they start to actually sing a song about him. And, and you tell me what you think Saul thought about this when they were singing. They'd say, they sang, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. How do you think a jealous, demented king is going to respond to that? Not so well. And so Saul puts a hit on David. Now, thankfully, David's best friend is a guy named Jonathan. Jonathan is the, the son, uh, the, the eldest son of King Saul. He, he's the one who would inherit the, the, the kingdom, the, the kingship, uh, if, if Saul would continue to be king. But Jonathan warns David on what's happening, and Jonathan runs, and he continues to live on the run as a nomad, going from, from cave to cave, eating whatever scraps he can find. That's the life the king of Israel lives for 14 years until finally he receives word that Saul and unfortunately Jonathan as well have died. And so David returns and takes, takes over as king. And that's how the end of Act 1 basically ends for David's life. Doesn't fit on this list yet, does he? If you know the story, you know from here <laughs> the, the tune changes a little bit. We start to see a different side of David, and we're, and we're going to go into that for a second, but I don't want to just jump into it because between, we're going to call it Act 1 and Act 2, something happens. God makes promises to David, and here's what God says to David. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. The Lord declares that that uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with flogging inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed him, uh, when, uh, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God makes David three promises. God promises that David's name will endure. Before you walked in here today, by a show of hands, who heard of David? Check. God promises that David's son will reign and build the temple. Well, later, David has a son, and that son's name is Solomon. And Solomon goes on to, to lead Israel. He, he, he's considered, he's remembered as one of the wisest or the wisest man who ever lived. He was the one who built the original temple, an ancient wonder of the world. And lastly, God promises that David's kingdom will endure forever. And for as long as Israel, as the Israelites are a nation, a descendant of David continues to rule and continues to be on the throne. However, the, okay, these are important, but there's a, another part of this that I want to point out before we move on to, to Act 2 of Jesus' life. More than just the promises specifically, notice how they're given. There is no if you, then I conditions attached to God's promises. There is no if you, then I conditions to, attached to to uh, God's promises to David, which is important to note because David's life is about to turn. Cue stage left, Bathsheba. Heard of her? Interesting story. So uh, David is up in his palace on the, the roof of his palace, and he looks down and he sees a woman. Now, it's already a bad sign that David's up on his palace. And, 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 and here's why. Uh, because his army is out conquering an enemy city. Uh, th- this was like a yearly thing. It just The changing of the seasons, it was time to go conquer an enemy city. And so the, the Israelite army is off conquering a city. Now, it is expected that David would lead his army. He would leave Jerusalem and lead his army. For whatever reason, we don't know why, David didn't do that. Maybe this is what he always does. Maybe this is the first time. But regardless, David holds back and he stays in Jerusalem and he stays in his palace. And so he's in his palace when he's not supposed to be. And he looks down and he sees a woman that makes him look twice. And he looks over to his servant and he asks him, "Uh, who is this woman? And the servant responds, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Ilian, the wife of Uriah? In other words, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of your friend? And the wife of Uriah, the guy who's the commander in your army, who's fighting for you? David either is ignorant to what the servant is trying to say, or he just doesn't care. 
And so he keeps his eye on Bathsheba and invites her to stay with him, and she does. A couple weeks later, the message comes to David from Bathsheba, saying that she's pregnant. Now, of course, Uriah is at war. So David immediately flips into damage control. So plan A is that he's going to ask Uriah to come back. So he, he makes up some strategic reason that Uriah needs to come from the battlefield to come back to Jerusalem. He's thinking that Uriah is going to naturally stay at home, and, and then it'll cover everything up. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately for David, Uriah doesn't. He says, look, my men are all living in tents. There's no reason why I should be living at home. So he stays in the barracks. So plan A didn't work. So David moves on to plan B. And it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable what he does next. He, 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 he sends a message to the commander of, uh, over Uriah, and he says, I want you to lead a charge. I want you to put Uriah on the front, though. Put him on the front line and charge ahead. And, and then once you do, once the battle starts, I want you to pull everybody else back. This is going to leave Uriah and also collateral damage here. Any of the men who are fighting beside him, it's going to leave them basically defenseless. They're going to be surrounded. They're going to be overcome. They're going to be killed. That's exactly what happens. This is nothing short of murder on David's part. He orchestrates the death of the husband of the woman that he's had an affair with. All to save face. And then, just to to make it worse, David marries the mourning widow of Uriah. He marries Bathsheba. And as a result of all of this, David has successfully controlled the outcomes. Granted, as a result, he also basically broke 10 out of 10 commandments in the process. But he's taken control of the situation, or at least so he thinks. Now that story, the story of Bathsheba, is one that, that many, of us, many of us are at the very least familiar of. But there's, a, there's another story of, of David that, that's not quite so familiar or, or, or popular. And it has to do with some issues within his family. David, uh, there's a, uh, members of David's family do later on, do terrible things to one another. Things that David would have been obligated to respond to, to seek justice for, to intervene and to make things right. However, he doesn't. Instead of stepping in and and providing justice, not just for his family, but for his his nation, David, uh, David chooses to do nothing. And as a result uh, of him ignoring... uh, it leads to this murder plot by one of his sons named Absalom against his other son named Abnon. And then, as a result, Absalom flees the country. Now, Absalom, two years later, comes back, and he tries to, to meet with David, but David refuses to see him. And then two years after that, Absalom returns, and he forces a meeting with his father, with David, in order to try to reconcile what's going on. But, but David doesn't even try to make things better with his son. And as a result, instead of establishing peace, instead of seeking peace for his family and his country, as a result, uh, David's decision helped to transform Absalom's resentment into hatred. And this hatred led to conspiracy. Here's what Absalom does. It's, it's, it's so, it's, I mean, it's devious. What he does is 
he stays in Jerusalem and he sets up shop each morning on the, the gates of Jerusalem. And, and he and about 50 of his, of his closest friends, they, they go and they meet at the, the, the gate of Jerusalem and, and they basically meet with everybody who comes in. See, back then, if you lived outside of Jerusalem as a, as a, a member of that nation, you might come to Jerusalem to have uh, an audience, not necessarily with the king, but at least one of, his, uh, one of his advisors, one of his representatives, and you could bring your complaints and your issues and your requests requests to the king via this, this advisor. And, and, uh, and so Uriah, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Absalom would intercept these people at the gate. And here's what he'd tell them. He would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. A lie. If only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. So he's, he's undermining David. He's, he's undermining David and his kingdom by making it look like David doesn't care about his people, that he doesn't have enough representatives to hear the needs of his people. And it's interesting, because just as, as David refused to seek justice with Absalom, Absalom is now creating this environment, this, this illusion that David is not showing justice to, to anyone. And, and as a result of this, what Absalom is doing is, is, is not just saying, hey, you know, they don't have any, anyone to, to see you. But then he adds his own little commentary. He's like, if only, if only I would be put in charge, I might be able to, to help this because you, you are so valuable. You are, and I don't know if he meant this or not, right? But it's what he said. And, and as a result, the scripture says that, that, he start, that he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And apparently he stole a lot of hearts because he was able to amass an army. And that army marched on Jerusalem and overtook the palace. And Absalom, by the end of the day, was spending the night in the palace, his, his father's palace. And where was David? Wasn't fighting. He ran away. And as a result of all this, a civil war ensues between, between these, these defectors, these, these rebels, and, 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 and Israel. And, and this battle brings death upon death, all this internal conflict. And again, if you get back to it, I mean, Absalom is, is not like, he doesn't have blood. You know, he's got blood on his hands too, right? He, he's, a, he's cautionary tale of his own. But you get all the way back to it, and you get back to David and his failures as a leader, his failures as a follower, his unwillingness to reconcile with his son. All of these issues were at the root of what caused this civil war and this ongoing, ongoing death. And, and here's the thing. If, if this weren't true, if, there, if, if, if this wasn't true, we wouldn't be speaking about David as we do today. We'd remember a completely different story. If instead of that, if it was, I will if you, if that was the promise, that God gives him a promise and says, I will do these things for you. I will establish this and this and this. If you fill in the blank. If that were the agreement that God had set up with David, we would not be speaking about David as we do today. He would not be the man after God's own heart that we think about today. In fact, to put this a different way, if grace had limits, David's behavior would have exposed them. If grace had limits, David's behavior would have exposed them. But God didn't go back on his promise. He didn't, he didn't withdraw his offer. And the limitless grace that God offered to David, 
God offers to us, to you, today. Look, you, you may not see a lot of yourself in, in David. You may look at David as a villain, as a person that you could never become. Someone, and, and David does represent a great deal of extremes, right? But what we do have in common with David is that we have all put God's grace to the test. We've all broken God's laws. We've, we've abused the gifts and the blessings that God has given us. We, we've confessed sin and, 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 and offer, asked for forgiveness and received forgiveness only to turn around and do the same thing over again. I mean, goodness, we've, we, well, maybe not you, maybe you're better than me. I've asked for forgiveness before I sinned. What do we call that? What is that? But after a while of living this way, of, of continuing to, to sin over and over again, of, of not being able to, feeling like we're not able to change our ways, breaking God's law, for, asking for forgiveness, and then committing the sin, after a while, this kind of stuff catches up, for, up to us. And after a while, we start to ask, how many times can I expect God to forgive me? How long? When does, does God's divine grace just dry up and his divine retribution begin? Where is that line? Well, if David's story is any indication, grace has no end. In fact, a few hundred years later, another man challenged God's grace, and his name was Paul, and he described himself in the letter to, uh, in the letter to Timothy, Paul describes himself as the worst of all sinners. And he, I don't know, he might have been right. Because after all, Paul, before he became an outspoken, uh, an outspoken ambassador of Christ, before he became the greatest church planter of the ancient world, before all of that, what his job, his career calling was leading militia groups to seek out Christians in the first century, to round them up, have them arrested, and, and potentially have them killed. That was his job, and he was good at it. But as he reflects on his own life and his lessons, his Paul's cautionary tales, if you will, he says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And in that same letter to the Romans, he reflects, and, and Jesus, or excuse me, Paul asks himself, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? To, to which he responds, he answers his own question, nothing. What shall separate us? Nothing. None of these things would separate us. In fact, David and Paul uh, both show us that, that not only can no circumstance outside of ourselves separate us from God's love, but nothing of our own causing can separate us from God's love. You see, King David, when we look at his, his life and he was never immune from the, the earthly consequences of what he did. I mean, we didn't read them, we didn't paraphrase them, but, but if you go back and you read First and Second Samuel, if you want to know all about David, you want to know more about David, read the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. That's his whole life. Don't look for the book of David. That's not there. Look for First and Second Samuel. There you'll find David's life. And, and as you read, David does not get away with his sin. He doesn't end up without some, on the, on the receiving end, the, the hard end of God's justice. He doesn't get away with those things, but he's a cautionary, he's still a cautionary tale. The, the second act of his life, 
I mean, if he were writing a book, I would suggest he name it How to Ruin uh, All of the Divine Blessings and, and, and Earthly Privileges that God Could Ever Possibly Give You. He started with everything. God gave him everything. He still failed over and over again, yet God's grace persisted. God persisted because grace is the glue that secures us to God's love. So look, regardless of what you've done, regardless of when the last time it was you came to church, regardless of when it was the last time you, you tried to pray, regardless of, of, of what you've been told, regardless of how you feel, God's grace is greater than your sin. Let's pray together. Jesus, our sin is no match for your grace. God, thanks to your sacrifice on the cross, God, our sin is no match for your grace. Jesus, if life was a performance, none of us would be able to hit the mark. God, thank you for for the assurance that comes with God's grace. That we don't have to go around wondering if, oh, at the end of my life, am I going, are my good deeds going to outweigh my bad deeds? What about all the things I didn't know about? Did I sin accidentally and and now, now the scales are off? There's none of that, God. Jesus, you welcome us into a relationship that is performance free, a relationship that is grounded in grace. Grace is what holds us to your love, God. And thank you for that gift of grace. We see it played out in David's life. We see it played out in Paul's life. And if we're being honest, we can see it play out in our lives. God, there is no way that we can live perfectly for you. There's no way that we can go through life without breaking a single law, a single commandment, nothing like that. There, there's no way to ever go through that on our own. And that's why you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, a spotless life, so that you could stand in our place and receive the death that we were meant to receive. But thank you, thank you, God, that, that it didn't end there. Because not only did you receive the death that we deserve, but God, you welcome us into the resurrection life that you experienced. Not just a resurrection life in the, in, in the life to come, not just something beyond heaven, God, but you welcome us into resurrection life today, a life that is governed by the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that, that we would be able to receive your grace and your assurance of a performance-free love and faith so that we could fully live into that grace and experience that resurrection life now. God, as, as we prayed already, nothing can make you love us more. Nothing can make you love us any less. None of our performances can do that. And so God, I pray that your grace and your love would overshadow our past and our sin and welcome us into that resurrection life today. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. If this was your first time listening to us, we'd love to know that you're out there. Text the word hello to 616-300-1776, and that'll open a line of communication between us and you. Now, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.